Hello and welcome to Setting the Stage, episode 25, Tommy and Oren. We are looking for more people to interview, so if you're a DM or you know a DM that might be interested in coming on the show, you can check out more about how to apply at www.gocorral.com STS. And without any further ado, let's get into the show. All right, today I'm here with Tommy, who's going to tell us about his world. But before we get into that, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and who you are outside of D&D? Sure. Uh, hi, I'm Tommy Garber. Uh, I'm a director by trade, so I direct uh, music videos, marketing stuff, uh, all that really fun uh, stuff that you used to see on MTV and don't anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And uh, I'm, you know, transitioning into the TV and film world now. So hopefully in a little while, you'll be able to see some of that. Um, okay, cool. Yeah. What's like the biggest project that you think some of us might have seen? Oh, man. Uh, I haven't done anything huge, uh, but m- most recent, like big thing, a little over a year ago, I did a music video for the Mighty Mighty Boss Tones, um, okay. who are a ska band. And if you're I've like, oh, that, yeah, yeah, I feel like that sounds familiar. Uh, their one big hit was The Impression That I Get. Uh, the Impression That I Get was like in every movie in the early 2000s. As soon I as you remember hear that, it yeah. from the Digimon movie, yeah. The Digimon movie has the greatest soundtrack of any 2000s animated film. Yes. Maybe bar Shrek. Um, but, you know, that the impression that I get is on there, uh, and that is a it's a banger of a track. Uh, and they had a new album coming out, uh, so we shot a music video for them out in uh, in the desert uh, with a bunch of guys in uh, suits on mopeds. It was, it was a great time. Uh, this, that track is called I Don't Believe in Anything. And the video for the impression that I get is actually featured in it, which is really fun. Uh, oh, that's cool. a, the video is pretty wild. Uh, we went for a pretty wild aesthetic. Uh, definitely a fun one. And I've done some some uh, like background or backyard show kind of stuff recently. Some really um, chill vibe, like acoustic folk sets and stuff like that, that that turned out really great. Those aren't out quite yet, but those will be like the next thing uh, coming around for me. So, yeah. Cool. Cool. So you're trying to get into out of the smaller videos and into something bigger like TV next? Yeah, I, I spent the last um, year or so, two years, developing a show, uh, a TV series with a, a really cool group of writers. Um, it was an idea that I had in college and, and I had kind of been poking at for a long time and finally came around and said, you know what, let's spend some time. Let's write a pilot. Let's flesh out the show. Um, so we're shopping that around. Um, obviously, the writer's strike puts puts a little Mm. bit of a a speed bump in that but yeah we're all very pro-union so we're patient and um we'll we'll come back around we we have some we had some progress going uh as far as like actually selling that um but now now we'll see uh but hopefully that'll be next because it's a i love that show i'm very excited about it so hopefully someday you know come around and i'll I'll send you an email let you know (laughs) check it out (laughs) Okay, cool. Good luck with that. Thank you, thank you. Yeah, so when did you start playing D&D? I, uh, I started playing D&D in high school, uh, maybe like middle school, uh, when it wasn't cool to play D&D. I, I, I know this is like a, a pretty common uh, topic of discussion for D&D folks, but like back when you would get, bu- you know, you get bullied for being into D&D. Uh, it wasn't as cool as it is now in, in the pop culture, which I love. Um, I know right. some some older guys kind of begrudge that, that it's like, oh, it's it's cool to play now. That sucks. But no, I think it's awesome. Um, more people getting into it. And that's that's really fun. Uh, so I, I got in as a player uh, initially, but really short lived as a player. I, I jumped right into DMing after like session two of of playing 
just because I, I really love storytelling and, and I didn't know that was why when I was a kid, I just liked that aspect of it. But I kept doing that. And then, you know, in college, sort of lost touch with it because I was in college and busy. Uh, and then I came back around to it in the pandemic and the actual lockdown of it all. Mm-hmm. And some friends who are sort of, you know, dealing with the isolation of it the same way I was and having a hard time with that. And I thought, you know, that's a good kind of thing to get back into. And we played an online campaign that lasted two years. Cool. You didn't really DM when you were first start playing. It was more like when you got back to it. Is that right? I, I did DM when I first started playing. It was I, I think I was a player for one or two sessions um, first, <laughs> uh, but I, I really quickly transitioned into DMing through through high school and all that. And then and then now uh, DMing primarily, uh, but I actually try really actively to be a player every now and then. I think it's really mm-hmm. good for a DM to be a player while they're DMing, um, not in the not in their own campaign, <laughs> but right, right. but in someone else's campaign for a lot of reasons. Uh, for the gameplay aspect of it, to kind of remind yourself what you love about D D and D, and and specifically as being a player, you know what's fun as a player and what keeps you engaged, and also you know to see another DM style to see what you like and even honestly what you don't like sometimes can be really valuable when you're DMing uh, and to have that active reminders is so helpful. And uh, I got to play with a really awesome group of people online with a, a fantastic DM. We were doing a descent into Avernus campaign. So a, right. a, a module, but that DM was doing really great work with um, adding, you know, really unique uh, details and things that were specific to us and sort of twisting to our path, which, you know, is the constant struggle of a DM with a, a group that hates railroading. And, and so, mm-hmm. so that was really, really valuable for me, uh, to kind of remind myself what's fun as a player and, and what, uh, you know, DM strategies really click for me. Gotcha. So in, in your survey, most of the other people talked about like specific worlds that they created and gave more details on that. And a lot of your answers were more about like your process for creation for the different campaign worlds that you've run. I was curious if you wanted to talk more about like process during this interview or if you wanted to talk more about like a specific campaign world that you're more proud of. Yeah, I've listened to a couple episodes um, since I because I filled that survey out a while back and then. Right. Um, yeah. Before I think we had we had like one episode out at that time. So. Yeah. And and so I listened to a couple and I was like, oh, I think I maybe answered this. Wrong. <laughs> uh, but I, I listened to uh, Sarah's episode about the Elder Scrolls because I'm I'm a, a big fan of working within a pre-existing IP. I think that's mm-hmm. so interesting. Uh, I thought this was a great episode. And, and Thessie's episode uh, I thought was great as well. I just listened to that one. Um, yeah. And I'm super excited to listen to Garrett's uh, with that single city setting. I think that's so cool to work within one space um, for a whole campaign. I'm I'm really excited to listen to that one. Um, but I'm definitely... Yeah, look yeah. behind the veil. This is coming out. Oh, yeah. Uh, the, yeah, the, the Garrett one came out today Yeah, um, that we're recording right now. Um, yeah, I'm very excited to listen to that one. Um, and uh, yeah, no, I, I think um, the I sent two maps uh, of of previous camp. Well, well, one is a previous campaign and one is a current. And I figure talking about Orin, which is the current campaign, is a good way to kind of talk about the process as well. They kind of go hand in hand. Um, so okay. we can talk about that one, and I'll I'll pull back the the process as we go through there. Okay, cool, sounds good. Uh, let's talk about Orin. Uh, you want to give like a. Well, yeah, spelled O R Y N. That's what I'm seeing here. Yeah, yeah. That that'll be the first uh, dead giveaway that I'm a big fan of a random generator. Um, that I, I think there's nothing wrong with making you know constant use of the internet 
and uh, Oren came from a random generator. Uh, I, I struggle with names as a DM, uh, mostly just the uh, the insane amount of names for things that you need to have oh, yeah. places and lot. people and every item and every legend and everything. You know, you really you really start to go through the lexicon. So so I am a big fan of a random generator, even if it's you you pull something out and then you break it apart. You know, I think Oren was a longer one and I just chopped off the second syllable. I like something a little bit more clear. But Oren in general is a, a, a really standard uh, D&D fantasy world. Uh, and I like to kind of pick and choose and then simplify from uh, D&D, you know, uh, lore that's out mm-hmm. there. So as far as like our pantheon of gods, first I start with what the players, you know, what they're playing. And, and I say, you know, choose any D&D god or if there's something that's non-standard that you want to use, let me know. We can talk about it. And then mm-hmm. I take those and I build I add a couple more gods here and there. And then I have a sort of simplified pantheon. Right now we have um, 15 gods in this one, five who are um, in the in the sort of space of good, five in the space of kind of gray, and then five in the space of traditionally evil. Um, and, and so we, you know, you don't have those 200 plus D&D gods in there. And then the rest of the world is similar. I, I kind of uh, streamline a little bit. Uh, so we have a, a sort of traditional melting pot capital, uh, large city in the middle. And then I spread out from there, smaller towns here and there, and I, I kind of build the lore around each each space. Right. Oren had a a war uh, about a hundred years ago from when we are playing in our, our current group uh, between a mind flare who enslaved normal people to be its soldiers and the uh, you know the normal people, uh, and that that war wasn't actually supposed to be the focus of our campaign. Uh, I I don't start out with a big bad in mind um Mm. i really like to let my players dictate what the focus and the theme of our world is so i like to set a little history so that the world has context uh why things feel a little bit new a little bit uh you know new world ish for the players so Mm. that they're not jumping into something that's too old and too established um to be understandable and so that war was kind of that it was sort of a reset point for the world okay there's a lot of history there for them. They really bit into that. Uh, that was the part that seemed the most interesting to them of, of a lot of the other lore that was there. So I gave a couple hooks and that was the one they jumped onto. So now we're doing sort of the fallout of that and um, the possible reemergence of this mind flare as our big okay. bad, which is a lot of fun. The the new empire like gives this indication that what new government that the players can sort of forge their own way and have larger influence than you might expect at a more established government where a level one character probably can't do that much. Yeah. And, and, you know, you're, you're starting with a, a any new group um, and a new world that's uh homebrew. You're starting with, you know, a lot of information to throw at a player. And so for that sort of re-exploring of a world, the world is still in the process of reconnecting. The capital is still sort of re- re-establishing outreach to these smaller towns and all of that. Uh, and some towns are still rebuilding their their culture and their world. I think that's a really good way to let the characters ask questions that are relevant to that and, and build their knowledge while you build the world. Uh, I'm also not a, a huge fan of the, the pre-campaign novel. <laughs> if you know what I mean. Um, yes. I, I don't I don't love that. I don't mind if a player writes a, a large document for their character. I, I enjoy that. And any investment from a player is great. But I don't like to to give so much homework that it's daunting so much to understand that it feels like you're going to be quizzed. 
Um, so I like to throw you into the world in a way where you have a couple quick facts about where your character came from, the town they're from, the people they know, and then we sort of build that as we go. If we're going back to the town that you're from, we'll you know add a couple characters in together. We'll do a little side conversation of who are you going to be mm-hmm. looking for, who do you know, and that way right. you make them feel more connected to the world. And they know that those pieces are out there, even if they don't know specifically what they are yet. Yeah, yeah. I was gonna say um, from reading your survey, it looked like you were doing a lot of like dungeon world style creation of your world, where you give <laughs> like a little bit. Uh, and then your players sort of fill in the rest of the map and the rest of like the country descriptions and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I'm I'm a really big fan of player involvement for world creation. Um, I really love. Uh, I don't know if you, you know, like Wander Home is a, a indie tabletop game, uh, and and Wander Home J Dragon made that. Uh, Wander Home is like uh, your your whole group sort of decides what the world is going to be. You don't really have a DM in that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that kind of system is so wonderful. And, and there's a, a line, obviously, for a, a campaign like this where, you know, you need a DM to decide enough to really give you the world to play in. But, you know, to, to let your players kind of establish facts as you go. Uh, and and in that same way, you know, building lore and world facts through random generators, through the the party being involved. Like one of our one of our sort of background facts is that instead of ravens or owls for your mail uh our mail is done by grebes which are sort of ducks i guess uh, okay. which, which came from a random generator and and our group has sort of started to call the mail system their gmail because it's grebe mail which is just okay. like an accidental joke that i couldn't couldn't have possibly written you know uh and so those sorts of things that, that the the players bring and in their character creation as well um each character kind of brought facts about their hometown in uh, one of our players is uh, is playing an Owlin, and he really wanted to have a world that was um, Owlin and their beasts of burden there, you know, instead of horses and things, they have dinosaurs. Uh, okay. And I thought that was such a fun little detail. And yeah, so we... Classic we, Dinotopia. Exactly. I love Dinotopia. I mean, I if I could mimic that art style for a full campaign, that would be <laughs> phenomenal. Um, but yeah, that sort of idea is really fun. And, and each player really dictated the town that they came from or um, for one of them, a religious sort of background and those sort of things. We, we really build that together in our character creation sessions, which I do individually before we start the actual play at all. I was wondering how much of you feel like the creation is like you versus your players versus um, random uh, generators, yeah. like you said. I, I think it would be like 80%, I'll say 70% me. Uh, 20% my players, 10% random generators. Uh, if if you're looking at the Orin map, I build this map, sort of the, the geography of it. I put, you know, 90% of these towns on here. And even if that's just a name, that town isn't developed, I just know, you know, I'll, I'll want one more town in this area. I'll want something that, that works as sort of a mysterious forest, as something that works as an ancient battlefield, something that works as the magic academy, things like that, sort of stereotypical landmarks to to build around later and then i'll go in and say hey what kind of atmosphere do you think your character grew up in uh and sometimes that becomes well none of the things that i have on here really fit that let's build something new so i have a a town at the south end of this map called san sitlan and that is fully a a player decided town almost everything about that town is built by a player um and he's playing a a fantastic uh, nacho libre inspired monk character um, okay which i absolutely love uh I have, I have a great group this time around they're so creative um and so that that little town is all you know his his 
mind and and it's played a lot into his character specifically uh, you know the kind of person that his character is okay cool yeah i was seeing a lot of uh spanish inspiration in that, that yeah, quadrant of the map that's mostly him um i don't speak spanish uh I, I speak English and Japanese, which in this setting is not very useful. <laughs> mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, he's he's brought that in a bit. And uh, and it's really added a, a particular charm to saying like, hey, this region of the map has uh, a sort of linguistic background that I'm not familiar with, but comes through very easily. I mean, I grew up in San Diego, so I'm familiar with Spanish. I just don't speak it. Right. Um, and so, you know, it, it really does add add sort of a um, a geographical divide. Uh, in a way that I don't usually dig into too much. Uh, I don't do like, you know, a big, a one continent that's only elves. You know, I don't do a lot of that. Uh, and so this is really, I kind of leaned into that a bit. And so I geographically, I cut it off as well. So it has like a, a forest that sort of divides it from the rest of the continent so that during that war a hundred years ago, it might not have been directly affected too much. Um, gotcha. And so that way it has its own little mythos and its own background. Okay. Yeah. Um, why don't you give us like a physical description of the world? Yeah. So, so this map is basically broken up into four chunks of continent. They're connected by small bridges or uh, really small slivers of land, except for one, which is currently completely obscured by on the physical map clouds. It's not actually obscured by clouds, but by distance, uh, which is sort of a series of islands that have not been explored yet. Um, but besides that, there's a uh, Lernea, which is sort of a desert section of the continent. It is uh, where our sort of elvish population comes from, mostly. Uh, so there's a sort of elvish cities there. It's also where, historically, that mine flare sort of set up base. Um, so okay. that area has been affected the most by that mine flare. Uh, then there's the sort of center part of the continent, which has our capital. It has our uh, academy uh, for magic users. It also has that sort of southern Spanish-influenced section of town that we were talking about. Mm-hmm. It has one of my favorite town names on here, which is Coastco, which is a big merchant city. <laughs> um, cool. And and a bunch of sort of, you know, smaller towns that are have a lot of different influences in here. Um, and then to the north of that, connected by a, uh, a huge bridge, there are these two sort of ancient bridges uh, that are, you know, miles and miles long of stone, and no one knows where they came from. Uh, then there's the northern area, which is traditional D&D style. It is sort of the snowy, icy part of the map, uh, the cold weather north, as you would have. And um, on the uh, far corner of that, we have a town called Spember, uh, S-P-E-M-B-E-R. And Spember is in all of my uh, games. Any map that I have has a Spember. Uh, it's a silly name on purpose. Again, I think it came from a random generator. Um but it's just sort of a, a standard, uh, you know, shipping town, a trade town, a really small but important port town. And it's always just a simple, fun starting point. Uh, and it gives me a lot of tools to play with that I already have established. And then I mix in some specific stuff for the new world that I'm playing in. Uh, there's a couple other, you know, bit large mountain ranges. The capital is surrounded by a mountain range kind of built into the corner there. There is a large mountain range that encircles an area called Sima Nublar, which is that dinosaur Owlin town we talked about earlier. Oh, yeah. Uh, so, you know, you can kind of see the Jurassic Park <laughs> of the name there. Yeah. Um, like the Isla Nublar. Um, and yeah, and, and there are a, a smattering of ruins and towns, some towns that have become ruins uh, during that war and more recently. Uh, and, and I like to kind of divide it up into a few obvious, you know, just by... This is an incarnate map. 
I, you can tell very quickly this is an incarnate map. I'm not a map mm. maker myself, yeah. um, but I, I try to color it in in such a way that you can tell this area is a snowy, cold climate. This is a desert climate, and this is a little bit more of a temperate climate, that kind of thing. So you get a quick idea as a player when you're looking at it of, of what kind of area you're going into. Okay. Um, what would you say it's like culturally? Is it like European, Chinese, African, or is it like vary between the different places? That's a good question. I think it does kind of vary between the places. I think that as far as like genre, this, you know, anything that is in the area of traditional D&D usually falls into European fantasy, right? You have that sort of like right. um, not quite Middle Earth tone. Um, mm-hmm. So so I think in general, it falls into that. I do like to um, allow a space to have its own architecture. Um, so when we get into that uh, San Sitlan city that we were talking about earlier, we'll probably develop an architecture that feels more unique. Uh, a sort of vibe that feels more appropriate to that character and and their background. Um, but yeah, in general, I think that this is sort of a traditional European fantasy. We have like the dwarven towns like Slate Hall in the middle. There's like a big dwarven town built into a mountain, very old school dwarf. Um, but then also we have some sort of fun things in here. Uh, I, I, if Maybe we'll circle back to this. I don't want to spoil things for my players. I'll put a, a little halfway mark in here for my players of, of when, when they need to stop listening. Um, but there are some other things in here that are a little bit more modern uh, that play on some concepts from, uh, you know, references and things like that. I'm struggling not to do a spoiler there. But yeah, it's, I okay, would say gotcha. gen- generally European fantasy um, with, you know, variants of culture by culture. Okay, cool, cool. I had a few questions about. Um... Well, a few different things I'm seeing on the map. Um, one yeah, would sure. be the the desert elf continent. Um, does that have any connection to the Under the Burning Suns campaign in Westnoth? Yeah, I'm actually not familiar with that, so so no. Um, but okay. but it's it wasn't actually a super intentional choice. Um, I had sort of drawn out that that island out there on the side, connected by one large bridge to the mainland, um, and I was just kind of thinking about what would be fun, different, like notably different. As soon as you set foot in here, I thought a big desert would be fun. Uh, and then I thought, well, I wanted the the ruins of this old elven capital to be far away from everything else. And so I started, it sort of like worked its way in there. Um, it wasn't really like, oh, I want the elves to be, you know, you know, dune marching elves. Like that wasn't really a, a, a choice that I made early on. It was sort of a, a mix up that got me there. All right, so not connected. But the Under the Burning Suns campaign is where like your elves that are in the desert after the the trees have all gone away in a future apocalypse. I might have to check that out because I we're we're starting to get to a point where I think we might journey out there in the near future and any inspiration is always good. <laughs> yeah. Um there's like two suns that circle the world now and there's also a bunch of like aliens that are attacking them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we haven't quite gotten to the the alien bit of a campaign here, but you know, I um I don't mind a little random alien fun in there. I, it's one of my I mean, I'm obviously you can always tell what games the DM is playing off on the mm-hmm. side. I'm playing the new Zelda right now. And uh, uh yeah. the, this is not a spoiler for Tears of the Kingdom at all because it's a Majora's Mask thing, but there's that quest in Majora's Mask where aliens show up and right. they like abduct cows. Uh, and that that's like one of those things that's always inspired me just like there's nothing wrong with throwing something goofy and silly in there and sort of off the wall for a one-off or for a side quest or whatever and you know hey fantasy have an alien show up i guess at that point it just feels like you know cosmic horror 
<laughs> but that's fine. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And the final thing for that section is you called it Lernea. Is that any connection to like, so there's like a Greek word for where that means like memory or something like that. Sorry. That is a, that's a hell of a pull. Um, yes and no. Um, that is a, a name steal from a previous campaign. Okay. Lernea was, was a part of a previous campaign and we did the false Hydra in uh-huh. Lernea. And if you're familiar with the false Hydra, maybe listeners aren't the false Hydra is a creature that, uh, when you are not looking at it, you can't remember it. Uh, and it will feed on a town and as it eats people, they are forgotten. And it sings a song that sort of persists this power. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we had a group who went into this town and, uh, we played the false Hydra. They didn't know what was going on. Uh, and we played this really fun twist where about halfway into this, they kind of start to realize what's going on. And they realize that they came to town with one more person than they have currently. And so I invented, an, uh, you know, a fake PC who had been playing with them. Not really. Uh, who was now gone forever and, and eaten and they couldn't remember them. And that was sort of the reveal of that. And I love that town and that and that name just sort of stuck with me. And so I, I brought it with, but it won't be a false Hydra town. And this, I think, layering a false Hydra with a mind flare is just like, <laughs> that's, that's too much. Yes, yes. <laughs> you know, you don't want to you don't want to stack up too much on, on them. And, you know, that's I mean, unless you're trying to end a campaign and then go for it. Um, yeah. But yeah, no, that is that's a that's a crazy that's a good catch. I forgot what that meant, but that's absolutely what that is. Yeah, that's the classic false hydra thing where you you have a fake PC. Yeah, oh yeah, I love it. And so so that's like I have no pride as a DM talking about um random generators and the internet. Um there are so many amazing homebrew side quests and uh, just things that you can plop into your campaign and that's one of my favorite ones. Um I've done some sillier ones. There was a one floating around a while ago that was um like a like if Bell Delphine was a demon who was like do you know who Belle Delphine is? <laughs> Sounds familiar, but I'm not. She, she's, you know, an, an internet personality. Uh, she sold her bathwater. This was the oh, big, the big okay. sort of drama back when this module joke went around. Uh-huh. So she was selling her bathwater, and the joke was like, if a demon did that to a town and sort of like brainwashed a town by by selling bathwater, um, basically. And uh, and so we did a, a bit about that. Uh, in in a campaign because it was a a little side quest module somebody just thrown up online and those can be so fun um, to throw in. Yeah, yeah, I've definitely thrown a few modules into my campaign in the past. Yeah, if you're running a campaign right now and you have not run the False Hydra, don't tell your friends to listen to this episode. Tell them listen to all the other ones. Go home, <laughs> figure out how to throw a False Hydra <laughs> in your campaign. It is it's a blast to to really make because it makes your players question every town they go to after that. I mean, it's fantastic. Yeah, I had two more questions about the map that I'm looking at here. One of them is that you have got this like skull with an octopus on top of it symbol <laughs> that's in yeah. a couple different places on your map. Are those like old mind flare? Uh, yeah, it's exactly what it is. So, so like I said, this is an incarnate map. So you know you're working with the resources that are on there, and I could pull it into Photoshop and do something custom. But every now and then you're a little lazy. So I I did a a skull with a octopus head just stamped on top of it, and that's our sort of mind flare historical site. Um, so ruins that were related specifically to the Mind Flayer War are uh, are these skulls with a, an octopus head on them. Cool. I'm also seeing uh, there's a town in the bottom right called Mir, mm-hmm. or Mir, which is uh, popular in the little Discord uh, channel where we're, we're talking about different things at the moment. The word Mir is. So you want to talk a little bit about that? <laughs> I, I saw that, and that that 
that conversation in the Discord kind of jumped out at me because I had done that um, again. I think either from a generator or from just cutting it out of another word, uh, like Myrmidon or anything like that. Um, mm-hmm. That's a town that I haven't actually dug into too much. It's it's uh, I wanted to have a neighboring town to that San Lan that was a little bit more connected to the rest of the world, and so it's a port town. Um, but that's that's about all that I have for that one. Okay, you're gonna catch me in a lot of this is a town that's not developed yet for this map. <laughs> that's fine. Plenty of people have that going on. No, I, I think it's, I think it's like such a, that. you know, a common DM thing that isn't, you don't want to admit to not being prepared. Um, but there's a degree of, you know, rolling with the punches and being flexible and having fun with it. Uh, and so I like to give myself a blank canvas in that way. Uh, so this isn't even a definitive, like my maps, I never say that they're definitive. There are towns that get added as we play. A good example of that is, uh, up on the north end there, I have a town called Cider Hall. And Cider Hall is just a small, like a tiny town of halflings um, because we ran into a group of traveling halflings. And, you know, they said, where are you from? And I thought yeah, I could put them at one of the towns that are sort of on the way, but then they'll go there and these people will interact with them again. And I'd rather not do that to us yet. I don't want to, you know, paint us into a corner. And so I wrote a new town in and, and made it a little town that's uh, an apple orchard town just kind of on the spot. And then I had to go back and remake this map. Not the whole thing. Just throw that one in there. <laughs> and, right, right. Uh, and, you yeah. know, I think there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah, I've done that plenty of times. Yeah, let's talk about the the gods for your world next. Uh, what, are, what are those like? Yeah, that's like I said, I, I start um, with the general D&D pantheon. And I even say, you know, if there's something specific from outside of D&D that you want to bring in to my players, you know, you know, whatever you want to bring in, let me know. We can talk through it. And I've never had somebody bring something where I said no um, straight out. I think the the closest I've gotten to that was one of my players uh, wanted to play a dog, like just not an awoken dog, not a magic transform dog, like just a dog. Um, and oh, there, <laughs> yeah. there is a there is a role playing system for playing a pack yeah, of dogs. Yeah, we ended up not even a pack. We ended up making her character a dog, uh, and and gave we en- we gave her dog the ability to speak, and then kind of developed a rogue class, you know, around that dog. Okay. The dog archetype. Yeah, the, yeah, the dog rogue. Uh, and just sort of each level custom set something up. But uh, that's the closest I've ever gotten to saying no outright to something. Uh, but it ended up being really fun. Uh, for this one, I said to my players, you know, what do you want to to use as your god? Or if you're from a town that you might not worship the god, but the rest of the town does, what, what god would that be? And then I sort of stacked the deck around that. Um, so there are three sections to our pantheon. Um, like I said, each one is made up of five gods. So the the primarily good gods are called the five, uh, very straightforward. They're Tyr, who is in a lot of D&D, but I think is actually a Norse god. I might be wrong about that. Yeah, yeah. Tyr is a giant within the Asgardian. Okay, cool. I, I, every now and then I'm like, I'm making that up. I don't know. Um, but yeah, Tyr, Tyr, who is one of our players' uh, characters' gods. Um, Rilafane Ralithil, an elvish god. Uh, of course, we have Bahamut. I love a good dragon god. Uh, we have Moradin, uh, who's our dwarf god, the lawful good god of dwarves. And then Yandela, who is a halfling matriarch and creator. And I don't know that it's always used as a god, but in our context, I thought it it worked. Um, and then we have the sort of neutral gods. They're called the fair. Again, there's five of them. We have Tamora, who's the goddess of good luck. Uh, Yadro, who's a, a merfolk kind of god of the sea. Uh, Savras, who is the, uh, you know, wizards, divination, fate, that kind of stuff. Um, 
and it might be Savras. Uh, that one has become huge. One of our players is a divination wizard. Um, and I'll come back to this a little bit, but that that I really didn't think was going to be a, such a big part of our campaign. It has really, really started to be the centerpiece. Um, we have Ogma, who's a, a patron of bards, and uh, Scorius Stonebones, who's the giant god of craftsmen. Uh, I thought Ogma was like the god of the earth. I, I think that Ogma might be a couple things. I think that's a very, like... D and D problem to run into is <laughs> so that uh-huh. like you know first to three point five to five e um the version of Ogma that we're running with is the greater god of inspiration invention knowledge and the patron of bards um, okay but maybe it's a reuse of names maybe it's the same character evolving I'm I'm happy no, to be no no that's got to be something different if you get if you get an angry email from somebody let me know because you know I don't want to be <laughs> I don't want to be too no. wrong. Uh, no, I was thinking of Ogre Mock. Oh, okay. I was thinking yeah. of a lot of similar syllables there. Yeah, that's that. Hey, there you go. Um, I try to do like single syllable and that ends up getting repetitive real quick. Um, and then we have also yeah. the, the fallen who are generally like stereotypically evil gods. Again, there are five mm-hmm. of them, but in our world, we've only revealed a couple. They are sort of forgotten gods in the world. Um, so the ones that my players know about are Cyric. Uh, who's the god of lies, trickery, and strife. Uh, they recently found out that included in this category is Tiamat. Okay. Tiamat, you gotta have Tiamat. Yep, you gotta have Tiamat. And that one is, again, kind of becoming a more active part because there are sort of a new wave of worshippers of Tiamat showing up. Uh, and they're sort of vying for, like, we're not as bad as you think. <laughs> and so there's sort of this Tiamat reformation going on uh, in, in our world, and that's very fun to see. And the rest of the Fallen are not revealed yet and so that gives me again a little bit of room to play i know who those ones are actually because to me that's kind of a big puzzle piece um but currently they're they're still hidden still forgotten in the world anything else you want to say on the the gods besides like just sort of a quick list of them um yeah i i think uh like i was talking about like uh Sovereign, i think is one that i i touched on briefly Sovereign is the sort of fate divination uh mm-hmm. space and and that kind of connected me to the theme of our campaign um which i i tend to kind of work outwardly from theme um so with the the previous campaign that i dm'd i I started out very general and once we knew who our big bad was it was a shapeshifter character and then our campaign really quickly became about identity um and this shapeshifter character who takes over identities in the literal sense also this character who had existed for so long that they basically kind of forgotten who they were and why they were doing what they were doing and then you know the identity of the player characters and that sort of became our driving theme and that ended up developing a lot of what those towns and worlds were about this campaign in Orin has sort of fallen into being about fate and faith and sovereign being this divination god has made it you know, a little bit more of a guiding light. Um, our divination wizard, who's a tortle, um, she is playing like an old lady tortle, which is just hysterical. She does a phenomenal old lady voice at the table. Uh, and I wish I could do it for you, but it wouldn't do it justice. And she pulls actual tarot cards during the game. So she has a deck of tarot cards with her. And, oh, and, that's great. Um, she's, you know, learning that as we go, because it's specific for this character. It's not a thing that she did in her life before. And so she has a little book and she goes through. So if she's making a decision, if she's meeting a new character and trying to get a read on them, she will, you know, she'll roll perception checks like normal, but then she'll pull cards also. And I cannot even begin to tell you how accurate her pulls have been. It is the creepiest thing. Every time I have like some sort of (laughs) 
plan that they don't know about or some character who they shouldn't trust. She pulls a card. It's always like, don't trust that person. I'm like, how how are you doing that? It's dark magic. I mean, it has to be right. Like it's it, it is amazing. And, and we keep record of them. So I have a whole list of um, the cards she's pulled and what they were about and prophecies, basically, that she's made by pulling cards by nature of rolling. And and then if it's not something that's decided yet, we'll work it in. And and so in that way, Sovereign and, and fate have become a big part of this campaign. And like what's decided and what isn't has become sort of a, a really, you know, they haven't played out a lot of those things yet, but um, they did just have sort of uh, precognizant dreams um, for each of them. And so those are benchmarks of, you know, does that have to happen or is that something that you can influence power of cold reading also <laughs> yeah exactly the god the, those cards are i mean it's so fun uh to get to play with that well we talked a little bit before about the different places that races have in your campaign so if you have such this big focus on mind flayers i'm curious if the the gif have a big role not yet it's that's a really good question in in the world of this campaign the mind flayer is sort of otherworldly um where the mind flayer came from is you know, cause of speculation throughout. Mm -hmm. um, and so that that hasn't really played out the the Mind Flayer's actual background and lore yet. Uh, but there's a lot of room to explore that. And and that's one of the reasons that I really like to have a section of the map that's unexplored, a second continent that's sort of developing as you use your first, not a complete world map from the get-go. Uh, like I was saying, you know, the, the pre- the pre-session planning should really, or not pre-session, but pre-game uh, planning should really only go so far. You want to give yourself space to grow. Mm -hmm. And so in that way, uh, they get, not, I, haven't, I haven't gotten around to them yet. Okay. What, what about the rest of the races? We talked a little bit about elves and a little bit about dwarves, but we yeah. also got humans, halflings, and whoever, whatever other base races you got there. We have the the standard D and D spread. We've got tieflings in there. We've got dwarves and halflings and gnomes, and um, we also have turtles, like I mentioned. We have owlin, who are a part of the world. We've run into, wow, I'm blanking on uh, what they're called, which is so embarrassing. But the elephant people, uh, loxodons. Loxodons, yeah. We have a we ran into one loxodon. Standard D and D monstrous races, uh, but as far as our world goes, that's that's something that I like to keep very flexible. Again, which is just going to sound like me saying the same thing over and over again, which is, you know, true. Uh, I like to, to leave that very open melting pot kind of world. As far as like geography goes, we have sort of a source area for elves, an area for dwarves, uh, sort of where they're, the dwarven capital is. And then uh -huh. the sort of human general capital. I don't really like to, to say that it's like a human town. I think that's sort of like the capital of the world. We have a town where all the owl, owl and owlin come from. We have a town where the uh, portal folk come from. Uh, and so we have some specific landmarks and then some sort of, you know, races have ended up here over time and where their home of origin might be, might be off map, might be so long ago that it's essentially forgotten. Um, those things, again, room to grow into as we go. Gotcha. I, I guess this goes back to a different question I had before. Is like, how big is your world? Like, is it? Is Orin the size of, like, uh, Europe, or...? Yeah, I heard you ask that on another episode, and it was so funny because it was not something I'd really put into words with this one. I did with my last session really kind of scope it out um, in size, and this one I just sort of grew as as I was planning and didn't backtrack from it. And I heard someone kind of compare their, their map to um, the U.S., 
that is massive. I mean, when you really when you really think about how big the United States is as a map, I mean, that is a huge landmass. Um, right. I tend to think of this map as, you know, lengthwise half of the U.S. Maybe you could cross it in, you know, a couple weeks of direct travel. Um, but, you know, it, it has these sort of restrictive pathways you have to. If you're crossing by land, there's only one bridge that connects two of these land masses in a couple of places. You could go by a ship, but you have to go all the way around. And that's why I sort of choose these sort of reaching out shapes, these sort of cut in bays and things like that to sort of limit the pathways. OK, so that as far as scope and scale goes, even if it's not the physically largest thing, you can't really make a straight line across this map. Um, but yeah, maybe about half the size of the U.S., the continental U.S. OK, gotcha. Oh man, yeah. There was that person that was asking about the different types of food that you have. In your, your <laughs> yeah, I I wrote down a couple of questions from the the Discord. So that there was one specific question about. I'm gonna scroll down to it here. What, what's the best cheese in your world? Yes, um, I I love that. That came from Sage. Um, such a good specific question. And for me, like little details like that are kind of I work backwards out of those. So if I'm like, oh, I want a new cheese, I'll make a town around that cheese. Uh, but for this, I thought, you know, I'll build with what I have here already. So so specifically for cheese, I would say there's two answers. And just like the real world, I think there's two, you know, two towns that would probably fight you over their town having the best cheese. I think of that's course. that's, you know, you got you got the best hot dogs in the U.S. Who's going to fight you for that best pizza, best cheese. Um, so New Lernea, like we talked about, uh, is sort of the elven capital. I think they would have some sort of like fancy high-end cheese that has to be like properly aged in a special cheese cellar It'd be like very fancy cheese they would probably say that's the best and then that that little sort of merchant town of costco that i talked about um i think they would have like a greasy like american mixed cheese kind of deal you know it's just like a bunch of cheeses melted together that uh -huh. you know that come on some sort of street meat and a lot of people would say that's the best and so i guess that's a, a matter of opinion what what best cheese means to you good answer and Sage also asked where you would go to learn to conjure that cheese. Um, and I mentioned the the Academy Arcana, the Magic Academy in Nolmeth is sort of our center of magic learning. So I think that'd probably be a pretty safe bet. Okay, yeah. But yeah, we, we you were talking about food in general, too. We Yeah. Food, food has been like, I again, one of the things I did not plan for. I always have a couple little fruits or foods that are, you know, fantasy oriented that I like to play with. Um, but food has become really central to this campaign uh, because our Nacho Libre inspired character, um, he is looking for ingredients all the time. He's trying to find things to bring home to, you know, make new recipes for the orphans. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> OK, and, yeah, it's hilarious. And it really makes me think about like everything we interact with. They, he's very he's very careful about asking, you know, if we kill a monster, can I cut a piece off of this and try to cook it? <laughs> and, and you know if we go to a new town what sort of unique ingredients do they have and it's really led led to a new line of thinking for me that town of spember that i mentioned having in all my campaigns has a consistent export called ham fruit uh and it is sort of a pink fruit with a curly q uh stem looks kind of like a pig uh just no face and that that's sort of a fantasy joke in all of my campaigns, just this little sweet ham fruit thing, because it uh, it's hallucinogenic if you eat it raw. And if you cook it into a pie or something like that, it'll get you kind of drunk. And so you have to, like, learn the special way to cook it. And, and you know, I like to have these little details that they can play with. 
my players are convinced that there is a, a conspiracy around ham fruit <laughs> as this sort of illegal piece of produce. And so now I've bit into that, you know, so now there is uh, something for them to explore there. Uh, whether or not it's a real cool. conspiracy remains to be seen for them. But, you know, there's there's outlets for that if they want to explore it more. Uh, but yeah, every town now has to have a signature dish and stuff that they can, you know, ingredients they can learn about because one of our players is interested in that. And it adds so much character to each town and, and world when you when you really like dig into what they eat, what their crop export is, stuff like that. Um, you know, the the sort of like basic boring stuff in your life ends up being such a good tool in, in a campaign like this. Um, and we had a I always do like a warm up question pre-session usually about a week ahead if i can um i shouldn't say always i forget a lot but i try to uh, and this week's was what's something that your characters miss about home while you're on these journeys and of oh, course that's a good one yeah it's really fun because it creates a, a memory right and and a sense memory even and um food is obviously a big part of that answer for a lot of characters and so that that's a fun thing to get to explore is and then I write it down, and if we ever go to their hometown, that food is there waiting, you know? That's cool. I've I've actually, not related to D&D, but I've had, like, questions like that when I'm doing, like, a staff meeting at work to, yeah. to break the ice. <laughs> yeah, no, it's great. I mean, that's, it's like a, an icebreaker question is a perfect character warm-up question, right? Because it makes yeah. you think about the past of your character, which is a thing you might not normally get to explore, except in dialogue or in consequence. And so instead for it to just be, you know, who's somebody from home or you haven't got to talk to in a while. Um, I encourage my players to like write letters to people um, and that either creates or revisits a character, creates a line of communication and sometimes can lead to a side quest or a resource or a thing that they didn't have before that that now is part of the world. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. Are there any of these other locations that you want to talk more about? Maybe Costco because you, you seem to <laughs> into yeah. that before. Um, Costco is so funny to me. It's just Costco. Like that's the joke, right? It's it's yeah. so obvious, but but I love to have a uh, a merchant based town. Uh, the idea of a shopping episode, I think, is you know really a common D and D trope, uh, where you get into a new big town. Our my session is actually going into the capital town next, so I've been prepping that pretty heavily right now. And the it's sort of that nightmare scenario for D and D of like essentially you get to this town and it's the largest town in the the nation. Anything that you are looking to buy or find is probably going to exist here. So Costco, Costco <laughs> is yes. is basically that way as well. It's a, a big merchant town where you could find a very specific kind of vendor or thing. We haven't actually gone there in the campaign yet, um, but that one is one that I I love the idea of this constantly moving merchant town. There's always hustle and bustle and a busy street food market and bigger stores that are established there. And, you know, any town like that is going to have a shady side, too. And that's that's where the real fun starts, right? Is the under the table Costco deals. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but yeah, as far as like other specific towns, I mean, I could and any number of these we could run through. But uh, I love uh, Sima Nublar is such a fun, you know, the the dinosaur aspect of that is so fun. Um, San Citlan has the um, excuse my pronunciation, but the Pueblo de los Muertos on the south coast. There is a town of the dead uh, mm -hmm. and they have a a specific relationship with sort of ghost spirit entities who are still on their plane um, because of their relationship with the god goddess of death there. And so that's kind of a fun aspect that we haven't played in narrative yet, but one of our characters has started to touch on a bit. Okay. Um, we have a couple sites of war. We have the Ironwood, which is, you know, a, a forest having grown over a, 
a battlefield. And then we have the fields of Farron, which is, again, a, a battlefield that has basically remained untouched. So you have sort of war scars on this continent, which is a fun thing to get to play with as well. I have um, I have Keaton or sorry, Cafe and Anju. Uh, that is a Majora's Mask reference. Uh, it's two. I like to do two warring towns um, uh-huh. and warring is usually kind of silly. It's, you know, a rivalry of some kind that's derived from some sort of misunderstanding or, or you know, a traditional D&D joke is two towns that are sort of rivals. And I like those names from Majora's Mask. They, they're the two. Um, I said Keaton because yeah. the mask you get from it is the Keaton mask. But the two, you know, characters who are in love with each other and one of them has been turned into a kid oh, and all this. That's right. Yeah. Okay. I was thinking like, what what place is called that? I, I know it's mask. it's I like to take a character name, use it as a place so that you're not thinking of it right away. <laughs> it's a little yeah. subtle, but it's not as direct. The the reason for that. Um, it's just a little name reference. OK, um, gotcha. Yeah. And, and then, you know, I like to have a couple options of sort of standard towns that when you arrive at them are a little bit wild so we had um, bromwich which is on the northern uh area so it was a snowy winter time when we got there and one of the characters had spent some time there before in their history but not in our gameplay and uh so he and i talked about the expectations of what that town was like and who he would know and who he would look for when he gets there and then when they got there the town was overrun by the fey realm um that essentially this sort of portal between the two had opened and a bunch of fey entities were like throwing a party in this town and sort of tearing it up. And of so course. his his expectations of that town were sort of turned upside down. And so, you know, one of the characters he was looking for was still around, but the rest of the town was sort of, for him, a surprise. And and that was a really fun way to kind of, oh, yeah, hey, tell me about what you what you think is going to be in this town and let's talk talk it through. And then none of that mattered. <laughs> you know, you really just turn their expectations around. And then when they clear this area of this party and, and you know, give them the boot, then the town kind of goes back to normal. And those expectations matter for the future, which is very fun. Yeah, that's cool. So in your survey, you mentioned like you had like a some some kind of mechanic for each of the different worlds that you came up with. What was the one for Orin? Yeah, so I, I develop a mechanic around the sort of homebrew. Um, generally, that that takes shape as we go. Um, mm-hmm. This this one I haven't really dug into a specific mechanic outside of that tarot and fate kind of stuff. Uh, and that, and that again, it sort of lines up with the themes that we play with. We have now sort of a table running for this of all of these uh, tarot card pulls and then also just regular um, predictions and prophecies that come to pass. Uh, And so they've, in a couple forms, they've now seen prophecies written down or spoken that could or could not come to pass. And and I, I play with those as mechanics now about, you know, as, as simple as a coin toss, as simple as a, uh, a roll of the dice to see whether or not something is going to happen. Or, you know, you put the choice to the player. You you let them see the outcome of something, you know, 10 sessions ahead of time. Uh, and then bring that choice up. And if they remember from their notes, great. And if they don't, you can tell them about it after. And you, <laughs> you <laughs> see, see what choice they take, you know. And so I like to give really simple visual reminders for that from, from a, a memory or from a, you know, prediction. Okay. Also, mechanically in this one, I, you know, I like to play with memory. We talked a little bit about memory with the, the false Hydra. But in our last session, a player had a memory taken from him in a bet and that kind of thing. You know, it's really fun to play that consequence out um, if it feels appropriate. But also, you know, you let them choose. You let them come up with a memory that then they as a player have, but the character doesn't. It's such a fun way to get them to develop what their character's stakes are um, as you go. Uh, that that particular memory, I don't know if it will come in as a consequence, but but the 
sort of player action of it was really fun to play at the table. Cool, cool. Did you want to say anything more about your campaign world before we got into like the events of the campaign you've been playing in it? Yeah, I think we I think we kind of covered the stuff that I wanted to to talk about specifically. I mean, I have stuff about the other worlds that I've played in that are fun, but I don't think that that's really super relevant. <laughs> I don't want to I don't want to bog down people with a bunch of different things. Um, yeah, prophecy is a big one. Um, legends and things like that kind of come into play. Uh, yeah, no, I think I think we've covered most of the world. Is there? I'm I'm happy to answer questions about specific places too. I mean, look, I have a couple questions for my players as well that maybe I can um, talk about. We talked about food a bit. One of my players who's playing the the monk is sort of quite wondering how much thought goes into the food. So we talked about that for a bit. Yeah. Well, I, yeah. I had a different question. Like, he sure. seemed to have a lot of focus on, like, emotional plot devices. Like, in your survey, you mentioned using, like, time travel to hit <laughs> emotional points for players. So do you want to talk a little bit more about how your your writing process goes for bringing those moments in? Yeah, I think... For me, that's the centerpiece of any campaign, right, is your players feeling emotionally invested. And um, that can be really difficult to do. It's also really easy to do. You know, you do the John Wick, you kill somebody's dog and it's on. You know, there, there are hooks that you can throw in. Um, but I like to to use memory for that specifically. And, and, you know, without prompting, we've talked about memory a couple times now, which is perfect. Um, and, and I think it's an underutilized tool uh, to create memory throughout the campaign. I think sometimes you think about your players character creation as sort of this one and done part of the process they do at the beginning and then everything that happens after during the campaign is all that matters as far as character development but it can be really fun to get them to revisit their past as a character while you're playing to say hey who's a person who you remember from your hometown as a warm-up exercise or you're going to that town delving into it more and, and pulling out little memories and things i have in the past but not for this session quite yet done um, solo sessions throughout the campaign um, so I'll pull a character aside and say, hey, I want to play out a memory with you because it feels very core to your character. And I want to make sure that we're on the same page about how it happened. So um, in my last campaign, our warlock, we played out the memory of her meeting her patron. And we played through that that little deal that they made. Uh, and that that becomes a very core part of how the rest of their character plays. Uh, and whether or not the rest of the group gets to hear that, it really does end up influencing the way they play. Um, as far as like... Mm-hmm. memory in the world i think it's very fun to play with it as like a a tradable tool you know something that someone can take from you or give to you is i try not to do it too much because you want it to feel major when it happens right uh, but it, but it can be very fun to kind of play with that because it's a fantasy space and and that doesn't prevent metagaming it almost encourages a little bit of meta thought in your character um, but the idea of I know something about my character that they don't know, and it's really fun to catch a player in that for them to say, oh, I know this because of this. And then they say, oh, no, my character doesn't know that anymore is th- when you give them that exact benchmark. It's really easy for uh... them to catch themselves in that. Um, and that's a very fun moment of realization um, for for a character. I played with that a lot in my last campaign. This campaign, I haven't started to dig into that too much, but memory has become a big part of it. Um, memory and prophecy in this one, really. Um, which again, just like the two parts of fate, you know, what's already happened to you, did that have to happen? And what's going to happen next? Does that have to happen the way that it's been seen? Uh, which is very fun. Yeah. Uh, I put in my notes that it, in some cases it sounded like you're almost creating this, like it's a wonderful life. <laughs> yeah, like plot. Yeah. I, I try not to like, um, 
make it feel silly when you're talking about memory unless it's specifically like and not that it's a wonderful life is silly but like you know if you're doing too heavy of a reference to something like that it can start to feel a little bit silly um yes i try not to make it feel campy with memory um but when you step into that too much you definitely can um but you know when you when you talk about like a, a character's childhood um or a, a common one for D D is a mentor character uh, so one of our players, you know, he he and I sort of developed his mentor character because it's likely that that character will show up again or he will reach out to that character. And when mm-hmm. you talk about what do you remember about that person and and what do you expect them to be like, um, that kind of prep is really important to me because you don't want to show up and, and play across from somebody and they're they're realizing, oh, this isn't how this character, especially for someone who does a lot of prep work for their character. Um, right. they've imagined something. And so you want to get that character in line with them. And as a DM, you're playing that character, right? As you play across from them. And so, you know, when you're building someone they're very familiar with, the more memories they have of them, the better. And so to communicate those memories, very straightforward. What do you remember? Here's, a, and then I'll, I'll play back and forth. Here's something that they remember about you, or here's a memory you share with them. And those sort of create connecting factors, um, which is such a useful tool. Yeah, that, that really is cementing it more as like a, a storytelling game instead of, rolling dice game for how you're structuring your settings it's sort of the the embarrassingly obvious i work in film tell right where it's like <laughs> it's it's that's how i've always viewed D is like a, you're playing a movie um i'm not a super numbers focused dm but i do play by the rules um i love the rule of cool i think it's great to get to play that every now and then but i don't like lean only on it i think you do need to succeed in your rules unless you have a a real reason for something to work, even if you fail or, or whatever the thing is, you know, um, mm-hmm. I play that very case by case. But when you look at, you know, Guardians of the Galaxy, I mean, I won't spoil the new movie. It's too soon. But the Guardians of the Galaxy movies are a D&D campaign, like yes. hands down. That's a D&D. That's a found family story in a magical space setting. That's a D&D campaign. And like when you get to play with those kinds of elements, they're the individual's characters past coming back to haunt them. Um, I'll reference two since that's been out long enough. But, you know, yeah. Star-Lord's father figure in the first one being established as not around. And then it, that's the consequence of the second movie is that he's he is trying to find you or whatever. And and he's this otherworldly God character. That's a and d story, you know. And so you establish these little pieces that you can pull on when they become relevant and when the group cares enough about each other and their characters to uh, invest in that. And, you know. If your father character comes back in the first movie and they're all in the prison together again, sorry, Guardians of the Galaxy, like you're not going to care. You're not going to go help them. And so to get them invested enough to pull on those memory based threads, those backstory based threads, like that's that's the the core of a and d campaign to me is for everybody to be invested in each other's characters enough to, yeah. to act it's, on all that. It's kind of funny that you're mentioning all of that. And then I'm thinking of like the original like Lord of the Rings that inspired D&D. Where... <laughs> those kind of connections aren't really that present for a lot of the characters. No, no. I mean, that's so high fantasy, right? And like that, I think that there's an additional part of that that still plays true, which is this like world exploration as a reader. So if you're reading the Hobbit and you're exploring these new worlds with him, because he is an explorer in that moment, right? He's going to a new place he's never been. And it's that sort of wonder. And um, I know it's sort of a silly connection, but it reminds me of like the food descriptions in Redwall, where it's like uh, I could sit here for an hour and read a description of a banquet because it's so 
amazing sounding and that's that's the high fantasy lord of the rings to me of like you're just wow the elven town seems so amazing and so interesting i want to sit in them and sit over this waterfall and look at all these people and look at what's going on here um and when you're developing a new place in a DD campaign it's so important to have that vibe and that aesthetic and that feeling to a place um and that's something that i i actually have to really actively remind myself i'm not very good at this when you are introducing a new space to say hey stop for a second stop the action and describe the space around them in like vivid and encapsulating detail so if they want to ask questions about it they want to explore it more um and that's i think that's sort of lord of the rings of it because otherwise you get i mean i know this is a movie specific reference but that idea of like um legolas doesn't know frodo and frodo doesn't know legolas's name <laughs> Have you seen this right. joke that like yeah. at, the, at the end of Lord of the Rings, Frodo just looks at Legolas and smiles because he doesn't know <laughs> he doesn't know his name. They ne- they've never talked to each other. They've the never movies. talked the whole movies. And I know I don't know. I haven't read all the books, which is just like my big nerd shame. But like that that idea, I don't know if it's true in the books, but in the movies is like you don't want to get to that point of your campaign of these these two characters who are so important. Unless you do. If that's the joke, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with throwing in a little gag of like, oh, did we just meet? It's like, dude, I've been here the whole time. <laughs> That would be very fun. Yeah, they don't talk to each other much in the books, but I think there is a a scene where Legolas is the one that makes sure that Frodo is okay after he gets stabbed by the troll in the fellowship. I feel like that moment might even happen in the movies. Like he, you know, leans down and checks on him. But but the idea that joke being ten years late is so funny to me that that like came around the internet so far after. But yeah, that's that that part of you know building the world. based on backstory you know uh, so so like i said i have this you know large spread of towns here and some of them are sort of fantasy stereotypes some of them are um worlds that worlds and towns that i like to incorporate because they're fun and then some of them are player created and then the player created ones really end up spreading throughout my world very quickly is like that becomes the the centerpiece of our campaign the why those towns exist why you would leave them and explore the rest of the world what has drawn you out of that place, you know, and that, that becomes way more important to me than um, writing my fantasy novel, you know, I'll do that on my own time. That's a different world. I'm not doing that. Nobody look for a book written by me. Don't read it. <laughs> All right, cool, cool. Your your campaign that's going on right now, mm-hmm. um, you mentioned that the players had focused on trying to dive more into the defeated Mind Flayer Empire. Let's talk about that. Absolutely. Okay, I'm going to I'm going to give my players a warning here. This is where they should stop listening. Um because I want to give a little more context and I think it would be a little bit of spoiler territory uh for them. So so here's your here's your jumping out point. Get out of here. Okay. Uh yeah. Oh, there it is. Yeah, you did it. Great job. Click to the end of the episode so it counts as a full listen and then get out of here. Uh So it's, they don't have to do that. It's like 5 minutes. <laughs> okay, good. So yeah. They're, they're I, I, I want to make sure you know you get that Spotify view. Um, (laughs) um, yeah, so, so we had that sort of as a historical precedent I sent at the beginning of the campaign, because this is a group of, um, internet strangers. We, we all kind of gather online and we play in person, Mm -hmm. um, which is a, uh, just an absolute blessing after doing a two year online campaign, which I loved doing the resources online again are very fun to get to use all those maps and things, but to be able to play in person with minis and all that is like, that's just what I, you know, that, that feeling of D and D classic, you know? Right. And so we're playing in person and, and uh, that sort of pre pre game two paragraph thing had the history of the war and who the current king is and a picture of the map and the towns that they came from. And that was about it. It was pretty straightforward. Um, so the the 
War 100 years ago, this mind flare shows up kind of out of the blue. Historically, they haven't established where it came from um, and sort of starts this war of territory, taking over mines with these uh, mind slugs, essentially, these sort of face hugger esque creatures that uh, plant on top of a, a person's head and sort of cover their eyes and have little tentacles over their mouth, uh, very zombie okay. style. Yeah. And and spread out throughout the continent. And so that, that war lasted about 100 years. When they finally won, there's this moment where the king at the time, who sort of united the people to fight against this onslaught, uh, was sealed in sort of a, a shield bubble uh, by his mages uh, to have one-on-one -on -one combat with the, the head mind flare, this lead mind flare. Uh, so what actually happens in there is obscured from most people and then after that combat happens all of the possessed overtaken we call them mind slaves once those those all die in that moment and the bubble goes away and the king is left standing and this mind flayer is dead um our players have been venturing in the the north a hundred years after that happened and they come to a town we did a really fun murder mystery uh because i like to sort of throw a a a non-mechanical episode at people, you know? So that was a very clue-oriented right. session, um, which was very fun and, and sort of takes you out of what, how am I going to hit this person or what's the, <laughs> what spell do I use? And, and you still use spells to investigate and whatnot. Um, right. But then the following session, they were trying to undo the, uh, the call that they had made because they they had basically accused the wrong person <laughs> of, of this murder. Um, and then in exploring okay. that town, they find a cave. And in that cave is a small prison cell uh, where a mind slave is still living. And so oh, this, okay. this person, the human body being long dead, but that's unclear through this, these cell doors, um, is trying to convince them to let it out. And they talk to it for a little while. And I mean, it is the most we we're talking about Guardians of the Galaxy. This could not be more like a Marvel joke feeling moment one of our players had seen the password to unseal this magical prison um earlier and said to the creature in the cell out loud does this word mean anything to you and then the door unlocks and you know <laughs> and like a zombie this thing realizes that it can get out and rushes out at them and one of the one of our players uses a spear and you know thought very quickly and said i'm gonna i'm gonna stab it uh and he sort of gets pushed back by the force of this thing scrambling out, but does stab it. And it gets its head just out of the sort of line of magic, this barrier that is um, preventing it from connecting to the sort of mind flayer network um, that they all, you know, are part of through this, you know, connection. Okay. And uh, as it gets out, it connects to that network again and laughs at them uh, and then kills itself because what's the point like the network is still out there i needed to be make sure that i'm not the last one uh done and so they have no direct experience knowledge that this big threat is probably still out there in some form and the next thing they're doing is taking this uh, mind slug by itself uh disconnected from the the corpse it was piloting um to the capital to say hey look this this threat is still out there uh and, and so we'll see where that plays out for them but the uh, again, big spoilers, if they've listened to this point, they've heard that stuff. But now you got to go. You got to go. Um, they 
they'll find out throughout this that, of course, that mind flare is still around. It was severely weakened. And so it was mm-hmm. sort of playing the underground long game. Uh, and its power is coming back. It sort of started to to overtake pockets of the world again, but it has evolved a bit. Um, so the mind flare itself is a big brain in a tank. Uh, it's not on a human-esque body anymore. And the things okay. it uses to control people are no longer these face hugger things. They're little slugs that go up into your nose and melt your brain and stay in and pilot your your head. And so they just had an encounter with one of these new age uh, kind of overtaken uh, people. Yeah, it's something just like that in um, Star Trek. Yeah, it, it does have that sort of um, it's not the Borg. But sort of, you know, become one vibe. Um, and I love to play with uh, the sort of zombie space. Um, not always traditional zombies, although I do that. I have done like a zombie session, you know, somebody summoning zombies to attack a town. Um, mm-hmm. But there's something to, you know, especially for your first big bad, your your first um, villain with a group of new players who you haven't played with before. There's something really freeing about a villain who is just evil and enemies who you're fighting who are for all intents and purposes, already dead. And so you, you don't have to worry about the ethics of fighting this thing because whatever you're doing to stop that thing is a good thing. Um, and then you can play with the moral gray area of their character more rather than the plot. And then, right. you know, you that once that plot line is played out, we've set the stage for a bunch of other plot lines with other big bads. Um, like I mentioned, you know, there's a new cult of Tiamat showing up, and that's one that I'm really excited about getting to kind of play with um, because they've had exclusively bad interactions with the Bahamut followers um, just sort of by chance. <laughs> that was not something I planted. Um, and then, you know, the Tiamat followers have been very helpful to them. Well, mostly some of them, not so much, but a few of them have been very helpful to them. And so so there's sort of this, you know, are these all bad people kind of feeling? And then once we get to, to that really taking off, I think it will be a little more clear. Um, but yeah, this this Mind Flayer one is really a fun starting point for them. Yeah, that's um, that sounds really intriguing for the players. So I'm hoping that goes well for them. Yeah, and we talked a bit about, I mean, a ton now about memory. Um, and the memory aspect of this will become the memory of the land because they will explore the history. Um, and they haven't gotten to this point yet, but they will have a an item, a magical item that allows them to witness the past. And so then those sort of, um, you know, battlefields from the past become very important because you can go there and see where that final fight happened. Or you can go to the place where the mind flare initially landed, you know, where it came from uh, and and witness those moments happen. And so, again, they then they have historical knowledge from the world that others don't have that sort of it gives them clues as to where to look next or who might be involved and that kind of thing. Yeah, that's really cool stuff. Yeah, it's, we're still moderately early in the campaign. I think this next one is like our eighth or ninth session. And so we really, you know, took off with that. I Again, that that little cave moment that I was talking about um, with the, the mind slave um, that they found wasn't really supposed to kick off the big bad. It was one of many hooks that were out there for them to grab onto, but they really bit into it and seemed very interested in it. And so I said, OK, well, this will be it. So then the next session was really leaning towards that and um our next one will be the sort of kickoff point for the big the big stuff which is always very fun to get into cool are you going to bring in any other the like classic mind flayer monsters i guess is one question i'd have yeah like i said this is a the first session in a while that i've played in person and so i did a you know like an etsy kick where i just rolled through etsy and looked at 
the coolest mind flayer style minis that are out there and that's a that is a fun afternoon it is bad for your wallet and i you know i haven't ordered all of them yet i want to get a little closer to that actually happening you don't want to over invest um but i i found some very fun stuff on there that i'm really excited to bring in some some old school mind flayer you know not sidekicks but variations Mm -hmm. that are monsters that in my mind for our world will be things that this mind flayer has sort of made and developed while it's hiding and and regaining power and then also you know some of these sort of weirder takes on mind flares that people have come up with now um you know like titan mind flares just like big gigantic creatures overtaken by this thing i think there's so much fun space to play there um that's cool yeah and especially with the you know the advent of 3d printers i mean just the variation of things that you can get and there's no reason not to just say okay yeah well this guy he's got a, a big creature guarding his door why wouldn't it also be a mind flayer giant or a mind flayer, you know, of some strange otherworldly creature? Um, and so th- those are very fun to, to play with. I don't have specific um, like generals for this guy quite yet. I think that's kind of the territory I'll go into is like mini boss style mm-hmm. um, tiers to get into. Yeah, there was the the third edition template you could apply to monsters, which was the pseudo natural template, which um wasn't quite mind flayers. It was like far realm stuff, but still like mm-hmm. kind of the same thing where, you know, you, you slap that temple onto a monster and now it has tentacles and can do weird mind. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like you, you give them just that little bit of visual connectivity. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And then yeah. also you have now the, the sort of like space fantasy uh, version of mind flayers and all that um, from Spelljammer, and, right. and, you know, having this, this mind flayer not be of this world it's really fun to get to play you know the the sort of standard other plane or is it a space monster and sort of you know give that that room to explore for the players of trying to figure out where it came from and how helpful that is to them they get to decide like if we can figure out where it came from will it give us an advantage or if we figure out its past what would we know how to kill it you know that those kinds of things let them choose how much of that detail they need or if they're like let's go kill it right now good luck i guess <laughs> it's usually the the spin oh that reminds me in in fourth edition they had this uh dungeon in the dungeon master's guide 2 they had this thing called themes where there was a bunch of different themes for like different cults that you could apply an ability on a monster and they all had some sort of like defining theme obviously uh, so you could have stuff that went together and you could like put this ability on this monster and this on this one and they all felt like mechanically identical. Yeah, like a like a kit bashed background for a monster. Right. Yes. Yeah, I think especially with I, I don't know how how much 4E really because I, I played 5, 3, 3.5 for a while. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I never really played four. I don't think I've ever I've definitely never DM for four. I don't think I've ever played in a session for 4E, but um you know, how much that overlapped with the internet homebrew kind of world. But now with the accessibility of homebrew and all that, I so many times I will like look at a stat block for a monster, either in a published book or in a, you know, um, Unearth Arcana kind of right. session. And, and you're looking at that like, yeah, this works, but it doesn't hit all the marks that I want, or it's not quite as difficult or connected to the terrain as I want. I don't think there's anything wrong with stealing an ability from another monster to make it feel more directly connected to the session at hand. Um, yeah. the, the shapeshifter big bad from my last campaign that I talked about had, you know, essentially like time powers. And I, I justified those through this character having been around a long time and sort of grabbing onto different magical artifacts and rituals and things like that, you know? Um, right. 
And there's nothing wrong with giving them a new power set to make them more interesting, the same way that your players find magical items or find new abilities or multi-class, you know? That's that's an established mechanic. Just just play around with it. And I've never had a player be like, what what class was that monster? Or like, tell me more about the, yeah. the details of this thing, you know? Because once it's played, it's played. And also, if you have a, a metagamey player, that's a great way to mess with their heads. I mean, if, if you have somebody who's like, yeah, I've played strahd a bunch of times i know what strahd can do it's like okay well now strahd can turn into a dragon so strahd's a vampire he's been around for a million years like let him learn something new um obviously that's not canon strahd I, but you know what i mean right, right, right. <laughs> the idea of of mixing these these villains up in a way that makes them feel unique and new and fresh for even for a player who's been playing for a long time um you know and if you're saying i'm playing by the module then play by the module don't lie to your players but if you're doing a homebrew world, things are going to feel homebrew. I have this. So, I, you know, there's a million tools for a DM to have your right. indexes and things like that. But I just make it in Google Docs and Google Sheets. I make a custom thing for every campaign I do. Yeah, I had a pretty wild like session of dreams last last session. They all they all had their different dreams that sort of revealed a path, a possible history or future so you know as we're as we're moving forward in the campaign i like to give them something that they can look forward to that feels like a big moment and whether or not that plays with the current big bad with the current you know focus um they they can you know play eventually play towards whatever our end game is or they're just general enough that if you know you know these this group is going to fall apart pretty soon or whatever the, the fate of this group is through scheduling. Every DM knows the nightmare of I'm not going to get it to finish my campaign because of that. I like to give myself tools to throw in a session. Say, hey, if we're going to if we're not going to do this, you know, if this isn't going to continue forever, let's do one more. Let's do two more at least and just really knock these out. Um, and then you have some little tools to play with. Um, so I, I gave a session at the end of the session. Uh, I gave dreams. Uh, and so these will play out over time. But our Owlin had a dream about a giant barn owl staring down at him. And and he's a druid, so it'll sort of go into the basis of his powers a little bit. Um, one of our players had a direct vision from Tyr, his god. And it sort of directly clashed with... He was, he's sort of revenge-driven as a character. And so I had his god speak to him and tell him patience. I wanted him to have sort of, you know, the angel and devil on his shoulder. You know, go for vengeance, go for, like be patient, wait for the right moment, kind of give them both um, to think about. One of our characters had a dream directly about the Mind Flayer, our, our Nacho Libre character, which again, you, you have sort of a comical background of a character. It's very fun to take that and turn it on its head and and make them the most scared, the the most driven to deal with this villain. Um, so he had a dream about the orphanage that he usually works at as and you know it's like his family there's all these kids there that he is in charge of and there's other adults who are taking care of it while he's gone um and he sees all these people in his dream overtaken with tentacles and inhuman features uh and so then there's this horror right this like i have to save the world or this will happen um and then a, a sort of further down the line one our sorcerer got his uh wild magic sorcerer got his power through a bet uh, through the same character who later steals another character's memory, a sort of wandering god character. Um, and his, you know, sorcerer's powers can come from a lot of things, but one of the main ones is bloodline. And so for someone to be given wild magic sorcery powers in a bet 
I wanted to play with, well, it's not just that you get powers like a genie wish, you know, what's the source of that power? And so his blood was swapped for the blood of a, a well, he doesn't know, but it will be Tiamat's blood. Um, uh, of course. And so he's directly connected to a future pathline. And so you have this rivalry of Bahamut and Tiamat and he's not an e- evil character by any means. And so it's very fun to to have this sort of lingering thread for him. Um, and then, of course, last but not least, our divination wizard had a, a dream about pulling cards. And each one of those cards was a visual beat that could happen very easily for one of the other characters. Um, so each character in her dream has this representation. Um, and they're not direct. It's not like, you know, so-and-so's character doing this. It's an image of a skeleton holding a book or, you know, something very general. But then when that happens, a good note-taker character like this player who's taking very copious notes while we go, you reward that. You reward that attention to detail and that memory by saying, oh, this is that moment from a year ago, you know, when, when you had this dream. And that's why I gave her a lot of them in that moment. Um, they are very general and very spread out. And one or two of them are going to happen pretty soon. And the rest of them will be whenever I feel like I need a big beat, you know? And and that's the the sort of fate theme playing playing through is, do these moments have to happen? Do the, the scarier moments that you see in your mind or, or that are given to you in some sort of vision, do they, are they definitely coming to pass or can you as a character influence that yeah i'm definitely seeing the prophecy theme to the world and i always feel like using dreams is this cool thing you can do as a dm because yeah it's so fun people don't control their own dreams so you have a lot more like leeway to put what you want into it for the type of stories you're trying to tell yeah and and if you need like a good ending point for a session because you know i I love my groups, but we're we're very much like we'll play for six, seven, eight hours. If you if, if no one says, hey, I got to go to bed, like <laughs> we'll just keep playing. And so if you need a reminder of this is a good hey, at six hours, read the the dream bit when you all go to rest. Here's the dream. And then it hooks you for the next session and you can move on from there. Um, that's always a great a great tool. But, yeah, I think I think dreams and and prophecy, I mean, prophecy within a world prophecy and myth right like those are things that make a world feel lived in um a a shared consciousness of prophecy and myth um that that all these characters know oh yeah we know the story of i hate to use harry potter as an example but you know that that sort of thing the prophecy of the boy who lived this kind of bit Uh yeah yeah. that people know about that and then you have the you know the star wars sequels where the luke skywalker has become sort of this shared myth um when you incorporate that into your world that it makes people feel like, oh, there's something to explore there. There's relics like the lightsaber. There's, you know, pieces of history that play into this mythos. Um, this The absurd version of that being my last campaign, um, Marvel, like the MCU became folklore because my players kept in character saying to people like, oh, like Spider-Man. <laughs> and I was like, this kid in this fantasy world doesn't know who Spider-Man is. You can't keep doing that. You know, and they're like, no, no, like Spider-Man. I was like, OK, Spider-Man is a folk hero now, this spider creature man. And like, you know, you had Captain America, who was like this monk with the shield and, and all of that. So if they reference the MCU, that was a folklore story that that was involved in the world. Um, and those sort of things that like <laughs> then a player knows the whole MCU. Right. So they can cite any part of that as as folklore. And then it's you feel involved in the world right away. Um, yeah. And so those sorts of moments really, really play out. So in this one, again, it's it wasn't my intention. I didn't come in with the plan of like this, this um, storyline is going to be all about memory and prophecy and 
fate, you know, that I didn't I didn't come in with those big pillars, but they became obvious very quickly. Uh, the players really, you know, brush the dirt away and the dust of of this is, you know, this is general D&D. Here's what's interesting to us. And and if you allow them to do that, you allow them the the multiple choice hooks of some different paths that can go get, go down, you know, which which one really stands out to them is a good way to figure out which things to focus on. Yeah, cool. Well, um, is there anything else you want to talk about that we might have missed? Oh, man. I mean, I, I know you get somebody on here talking about their D&D world. You talk to them all day because uh, yeah. there's always so much to to get into. I think that's it. I had some little notes. We did our, our questions from Discord and stuff. Um, I had one more from a, a player, um, but I think we kind of touched on it, mostly just the idea of like a specific religious ritual that we went into um, mm-hmm. as the backdrop for this murder mystery session we did. And oh. he was just wondering like how I came up with the ritual for that um, and, and religious ceremonies and things. And for me, that one, it was called the dawning and it was just the opening of a new temple. Um, that was like a, uh, I wanted to show the um, corruption of a particular religious group. So the traditional ritual was very inclusive of other faiths. It was, you know, Hey, we open a new temple. We invite all a representative of each religion to come and sit with us and celebrate this new opening and then the person running this one is like i don't really want you all here you know and so Uh, you you make them villainous in that moment to say hey you know i had to invite you all because that's the tradition but i don't really care if you're here or not and you're not really welcome back and so you get this footloose exactly yeah you get this sort of corrupting uh of a particular group and and it gives your group something to remember about that that uh event um so when you have a ritual that should be one way but another player you know one of the players grew up in this group right so his character would recognize this doesn't exactly sound right um and that and so instead of writing down a long thing and reading word for word what happens in the ritual you can say something to the effect of like he does this ritual but you notice these differences these things that are not quite right uh or are a little bit less inclusive than usual Mm. um and so yeah so i i you know I work back from purpose on that, which is similar to the theme thing. It's like, you know, once you figure out what the themes and the purpose is, then you build the places, then you build what that town needs to be. Um, so instead of, you know, having this whole map and deciding every detail for every town, I like to work backwards from what do I need from a town this session? And what do I need from a, a religious uh, ritual this session? Or, or, you know, what details do I need to pull out to make it fit theme? And also have the resources that they want i know a player has been desperately trying to buy a new sword so i gotta have a blacksmith in here you know <laughs> um, yeah. you know and, and just sort of it becomes every town becomes an amalgamation of theme like thematic need and gameplay need and and then that way you have the freedom to kind of build those as you go um, and then when you revisit them you know how they've grown and how they've changed by adding to that or taking away from it yeah thanks a lot for sharing that i feel like one of the other questions i ask is like what dm advice do you have but i feel like you you just gave that so. yeah yeah i think the the only other like general dm advice i would say is and i think a lot of dms will say this is just like do it just do it if you're like oh i want to play but i don't have friends who maybe like the idea of playing but nobody wants to dm and we went on reddit and tried to find a dm just just one of you be the dm and switch around or if you hate it fine switch off but like i don't do character voices i don't do accents um for for different areas i don't do that 
Um, and you don't have to be perfect at every part of DMing to be a good DM. You just have to embrace your players and em- embrace the absurdity of the world and the game and allow it to to be silly. Not every session is going to feel like the finale of Critical Role, you know? Like, y- mm. you got to learn what D&D really feels like at a table by playing. And And I think, like, especially for me, I was really nervous about that. Even getting back into it after having done it for a while, the idea of, like, I'm going to DM for my friends. It's going to be embarrassing and be in front of my friends doing this. Like, no, if they want to play. They're signing up to play with you and to explore this new thing. Just do it. Just get get at a table or get online. There's nothing wrong with doing it on Zoom and um, Roll20, you know. Um, that's a great way to play. And just try it out as as a player, as a DM. Um, there's nothing wrong with, you know, being new to something. Yeah, yeah, that's some good advice there. Oh, yeah, and, and steal. Steal is my, my other. Just go online and steal. I, there's a reason that half of this stuff is like from on the internet, you know. I mean that it's there's so much fun stuff out there. Just steal, go run the false hydra. I have a town that's uh, the letters are Gotham mixed up. That whole everything in that's going to be stolen from Batman. Just steal. It's it's a great way to DM. That's a good note. That's a good note to end on is theft. <laughs> oh, um, you know, inspired plagiarism. Yeah, that's that's the nicer wording for it. <laughs> Well, yeah, I think that's that covers everything. Um, yeah, thanks for coming on the show, Tommy. It was great talking to you, too. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's a blast to explore, and it's always so fun to hear about other people's worlds and thought processes. I'm, I'm a fan now. I've been listening my way through the catalog, and like I said, I'm, I'm really excited to hear this week's about the, the one city thing. I mean, that, especially playing at a, a table uh, of you know physical space, the idea of just building one town and coming back to that every week, that sounds so fun. I want to do that so bad now. I'm going to change my whole campaign to one town. Steal. That's what I'm saying. One town. I'm stealing that. <laughs> no, but thank you for having me. This was a lot of fun. It's fun to explore the, the world and, and you know, build it. And now I'm going to be adding things that we talked about today. I didn't make anything up today, but, you know, we'll get it there. Yeah. Yeah, well, you're welcome. Thank you for coming awesome. on the show. Thanks. Great meeting you. We're still looking for people to interview, so if you or someone you know might want to appear on the podcast, please let them know. Our web address is gocorral.com slash STS, G-O-C-O-R-R-A-L dot com slash STS. Thank you.